Uh, hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. Hey, welcome to our podcast. I mean, welcome, welcome to everyone you. else. Oh, okay. I was going to say. We missed a couple weeks because um, I don't remember. Last week was my fault, I think. Or No, you had... Anyways. Yeah. Hi, we're back. Oh. Um, we can't talk about that secret mission to North Korea. Yeah. So I'm standing in my basement, as people do. When they record podcasts? Yeah. And there was a little, like, tag hanging in. It looked like a paint chip in the paint. It should be mentioned that I basically live in, like, at least the basement of our house is, it literally was a slum tendency sort of place for a while. Um, And so now it's just partially torn down. Right. (laughs) It's been... Purposely made uninhabitable. I think they like to call that distressed. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's wabi-sabi. But there was a little chip, like, hanging on the paint right behind my laptop. So I decided to pull on it. And it was a three-foot-long piece of packing tape that had been taped (laughs) under the... Like, that had just been painted over. Nice. Yeah. So did you see it? Is there a secret color underneath there? Yeah, they painted... um, no pigment white, just the, I bought the paint and didn't want to mix a color white oh. over the top of like, I don't know, either eggshell white or really dirty, no pigment white. <laughs> it's hard to tell. Okay. Well, it's, uh, the, these are the exciting discoveries of homeownership. It's like yeah. a little, uh, you know, secret history mission. Yes. So. Now, Our hallway was pink for a while. See, there you go. Now, you know, a little bit more about the people who came before you. It's called ethnology, I think. Ethnography. Ethnography. I mean, if you want to pronounce it wrong. <laughs> uh, so there's a bunch of stuff on our list this week that all falls under the category of uh, random shit. Stuff from SIGGRAPH. I was going to go stuff with stuff on the internet. Stuff that either is from SIGGRAPH or should be at SIGGRAPH or is tangentially related to SIGGRAPH or oh, research stuff. in general. So we're going to go with video stuff this week. Yeah, but it's sort of a little bit... Someone has started hammering outside my window. I'm sorry about that. Um, I will individually remove each hammer hit in post. Um, Mm, Audition. I think Isotope has a uh, filter for that. Yeah. Um, So which one of these was your favorite? Um, I don't know. There were a couple good ones this week. Um... We should talk about the uh, hyperlapse footage. Yeah. This that was, was cool. And I assume this is being presented at SIGGRAPH. It's from Microsoft, right? Yes. Yeah. Microsoft Labs. So how does this work? Okay. So all the time people keep trying to invent iOS apps to make editing easier because everyone wants to shoot these long, boring, horrible shots of things and then... Everyone knows that no one's going to watch them. And so the solution is we need to come up with a great editor to make these more interesting. And like most people trying to solve the problem they see instead of the underlying problem, they're never any better. Um, but what the, what Microsoft did was they made this thing for, uh, you know, the hyperlapse video was a fad a couple years ago. I think it was mostly Google Street View based. Yeah. So someone made a tool where you could say, like, I want to drive from here to here, and it would just string together sort of a 
um, like a time lapse of the drive from one place to the other. Um, but you know, a little bit smoother or something. I'm not really sure what differentiated it from just a time lapse. Um, but what the first person hyperlapse is, is you strap a camera to yourself, um, like your head, and then this thing will actually go through and sort of figure out the general direction you're moving in and remove all of your head movements. And then, so it's kind of like a forward-facing steady cam shot in super fast speed of the walk you just took. Right, but it's also trying to, you know, if you just do time-lapse, there's a ton of noise. And what it's trying to do is remove the noise of things that were only there for one frame, for example. Like if you're doing a, you know, a time-lapse of a sunset over a beach and someone walks through the frame, you're going to have like one frame with a person halfway through the frame and they're not there before or after. And what it does, because you're actually moving the camera, that's a lot, you know, in that example, that'd be easy. Um, but if you're moving the camera, that's a lot harder. And so it actually is basically like reconstructing. It, it's, it's reconstructing the 3D space yeah. and figuring out where the camera is and which way it's pointing. And it's basically removing all of the framing changes. Right. You know, because it's specifically designed for having a camera strapped to your head, in which case you look at a lot of random stuff. And so it removes all of those. It basically creates a new artificial camera position, which is, you know, like what you would do if you were shooting a um, study cam of the same walk. It's just like shooting forward, just, you know, floating camera traveling through space. And it's, you know, it's pretty impressive what they're able to do. Yeah. I mean, occasionally it gets a sort of funny artificial look um, because what you're seeing is not what was actually show, you know seen in real life. But for the most part, it's a lot better than a normal time lapse. And it's a really oh, it's definitely interesting than, look. Yeah. It'd be interesting if these took off. Um, you know, hopefully we're not going to get to a point where cameras strapped to our heads are ubiquitous. But if we do... Yeah. This is about the only not horrible thing to do with the video. Yeah, absolutely. But it also, you know, there are a lot of activities we engage in um, where this is, I think, an interesting balance between the struggle we've talked about in the past, which is, for example, when you travel, do you bring a, a good still camera or bring a video camera? Um, because you capture events in different ways and this is almost a happy medium if you're going out on a really beautiful hike or something you can get that sense of movement and that you know sense of dynamism of the landscape and of the video the yeah. walk without having to actually go through and like oh shoot this and then i'll shoot it this and then i'll you know edit it all together and then you never actually edit it all together yeah um i think it's an you know and and with gopros and things being fairly ubiquitous or easily attainable and especially as we move into google glass and things like that um it becomes you know more realistic yeah i can see it so i i mean i hope they put this out as a tool that's always the issue with microsoft labs is that a lot of things um either you know never see the light of day even as a sort of toy app or they do and then sort of disappear again um like their dragon image thing that sort of 
you know, I hope they find a place for this. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's tough because of the, it really needs to be a client side tool. Yeah. I mean, the dragon stuff has kind of made its way into some maps tools and other things. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I don't know. I mean, this doesn't, I guess this doesn't have to be client side in the long term because it's just a bandwidth issue but it certainly at least for now makes more sense as a, an app and i i don't know yeah um you know maybe if microsoft were to make a head mounted you know uh, make glasses or something but god let's hope not it doesn't seem likely i mean even google's not making glasses anymore are they um i think they still are but i mean but not enjoying it Right. <laughs> um, and I don't think a watch-mounted camera would be as useful for this. No. No. Although it's a little Dick Tracy. Do you think they'll do that? Do you think they'll put FaceTime on the iWatch so you can Dick Tracy from your wrist? Mm, that'd be fun. We'll see. I don't know. Um, power might be an issue. Mm, they've solved that somehow. Yeah. I figure it's just going to be wirelessly powered from your phone. <laughs> right? Maybe. I was thinking what would be really cool for that is if they uh, just had a little USB dongle that you plugged in, like your keyboard or your laptop, or built it in the laptops that just charged your charged your watch remotely while you were using your computer all day. Hmm. Well, yeah, I'm curious if they can do something with their auto-widening watch. Yeah. Not I mean, if they have a screen, obviously. Yeah, that's the problem is, it, you know. None of those generate that much power. Well, but they don't, I mean, depends on what you're driving. Right. If it's just an M5 chip, sim by itself, or M7 or whatever it was. Yeah, I kind of can't see them doing just that, though. I think the world would be pretty upset. If they just made a better Fitbit? Yeah. Fitbit's done okay. They've done okay on normal scales. They haven't done okay, you know. Yeah, but Apple's not going to do better than that with a launch. Oh, sure they will. No. I would never buy a watch. You're going to buy a watch. I would buy a Fitbit before I bought a watch. Because yeah. I already have a watch. The watch is not to tell time. It's to make a fashion statement. Yeah, and that's why you're going to buy the Apple Watch. Ugh, I can't imagine it not being horrendously ugly. <laughs> um, I'm guessing they're not going to have a problem selling all the ones they can make. Yeah, I agree, but it's not going to be. Yeah, we'll see. Never say never. I understand why you don't wear a pebble, but... Yeah, I mean, it's going to be better than that. But I'm still not convinced it's going to be more than just a fuel band or something. I I mean, I would actually be totally on board if it was more fuel band style, but probably with some sort of display still. Yeah, I mean... I don't need a watch face, but... Yeah. I don't know. So my favorite story from our list was the potato chip bag filmed through glass. Oh, yeah. So this is some uh, group that's come up with an algorithm for recovering speech by filming the vibrations on a potato chip bag through something glass. Anything, yeah, anything but, deformable, basically. Um, basically, you know, through... Potted plant. With a high-speed camera, looking through soundproof ga- glass at a room with a vibrating thing on a table that people are having a conversation. They were able to reconstruct what was being said. It's crazy. It's pretty cool. And it's sort of the next step from the uh, from a laser mic. Um, right. 
and you know now all the buildings that are outfitted with anti-laser mic glass are going to have to be just get rid of their windows entirely yeah um i have to assume i mean that was a problem before right like if you like this is really cool tech but like if you're having a conversation in a room with a window isn't like lip reading probably the easiest way to recover everything maybe i don't know i mean unless you're one of those people who like covers your mouth every time you talk yeah which i guess maybe the spooks do um but it's also i mean it's yeah it's really cool stuff um and yeah. it's in that that whole category of sort of scary things that people can do via sensing sort of like the um the one from a while back of like recovering your password from the vibrations on the table as you type your password on a keyboard oh i didn't see that one i mean this is this is basically the same from my reading of it it looks like it's basically the same general algorithm as the pulse stuff yeah, it's all that stuff where they were able to recover uh, temporal data from pixels. Oh, yeah, yep. Yeah, so they had the one where they could, like, you could see babies' heart rates and all that other stuff. So I believe it's the same sort of thing. Um, and that every year gets a little bit better, which is sort of scary. Yeah. Um, so we'll see going forward. But it's crazy. Um. And that sort of figures into my second favorite article from the week, um, which was the Nature article on the 4.4 trillion frame per second camera. Yeah. Um, which, if you haven't, um, if, if you aren't familiar with this, definitely take a look at the link, which actually has a video attached to the article. Um, the videos are poorly labeled, but whatever. It's the, it's the largest of them in terms of megabytes that actually walks through how this works and what it's for and has some example videos. Um, the idea is to have a camera that is high enough speed to actually watch chemical reactions taking place. Um, and they do it in a pretty insane way um, with like a single single pulse of a laser that, that they then split into men, uh, a bunch of different pulses um, and delay at slightly different rates and then bounce them all so they pass through the site and then pick up the shadow on a sensor. Um, it's really crazy. And the imagery is pretty incredible as well. When you consider that it's happening at one 4.4 trillionth of a second. I don't think I saw the video. Yeah. It's very non-obvious on the article. It's down at the bottom somewhere where yeah. there's like associated videos. They're one of those ones that the videos look like they're like spam. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's like a quick time file that you download. Um, oh really? Yeah. Oh, and download references? Is that right? No. Uh, I don't know. Oh, movies. There we go. Wow. Okay. I'll download it and watch it later. Yeah, it's it's pretty nifty. So they have it's one of these rigs with like a table with a bunch of mirrors on it and a laser pulse emitter and um it's pretty cool. roll. Um so in terms of high speed camera, it's a long ways from a phantom. Yeah. Um, also can only capture five frames. So, well, you know, if you pick the right five, exactly. Um, so yeah. And the only other one on the list, I guess, I think we have a duplicate of hyperlapse, but, um, 
the auto season changing was just one of these sort of cast off things from SIGGRAPH. Um, but it's an algorithm that is a mix of sort of some photo processing stuff and then a learning algorithm that can look, it can understand the mood of different photos, whether it's snowy or fall or night or dark or cloudy or raining or whatever, and can learn what it is about the photo that made it have those descriptive terms applied to it. And then you can tell it to make a photo look like fall and it understands what to do to that photo to make it look more like fall. Yeah. This was, I don't know, this was less impressive than I... Um, Yeah, and I couldn't tell if it was the video that wasn't selling it very well or if the actual tech is not very good. Well, the tech seems to basically be building LUTs. Like, I didn't see a lot of other changes. They did some compositing in terms of adding snow and stuff, but... I don't think they did. I think they made everything that was green-white. Maybe. Um, I mean, it's... There's... It's kind of neat, and I can see where this would be useful, you know, in a nonlinear editor now for doing certain kinds of things. But um, it's not going to replace an effects company or something. No, 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 no. But it's I, and it was also an interesting case of doing some research using. I think they used Mechanical Turk. They used something like they Mechanical used one Turk. of those. Yeah, they crowdsourced a bunch of. So they took like eight thousand images and put them on Mechanical Turk and said. How do you describe these images? Right. Which is always kind of neat to see. Yeah. Um, Very briefly, um, if you have a Mac Mini and you've ever tried to use it headless and you've realized that you don't get... um, Do they still call it like Quartz Extreme? You Uh, you basically uh, don't get any OpenGL acceleration of your Mac and none of your OpenGL-dependent apps work. Um. That is because when a Mac Mini doesn't have a display plugged into it, the um, GPU is actually not active. And this is also true of X-Serves, if you still have any X-Serves. And for a long time, the workaround was like, in my case, I would take one of the mini DVI to VGA adapters, and then you'd put a bunch of resistors into the pins that... uh, that it uses to detect a monitor being attached. So finally, uh, OWC is now selling a Mac Video Fooler, which is basically just one of those. It's a little dongle that you plug in that uh, shorts the right pins together with the right resistance. Um, to... I have to imagine it actually does something a little bit better. Like it can't actually go to VGA and back. I don't. If you look at the device, it looks an awful lot like it's an Apple dongle with a thing plugged into it. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I you would think they could do it in DVI land. Yeah, they may do it there, but I'm not sure. It's that'd be my hope. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so this is a no brainer if you have that problem because I, it's always been shocking to me that you couldn't buy one of these off the shelf. But I think it's fairly unique to the Mac. Um, it's also shocking to me that they never just added it to the monitor preferences. Right. Like just run the damn GPU. Yeah. I mean. Or some like especially the excerpt like that was a, the point was to run it headless. Yeah, but the point was never to run OpenGL dependent stuff on it. Well, then you know, shouldn't put a graphics card in the damn thing then. <laughs> they didn't used to. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, it was always that mixed message because they you know told you also to use them for compressor. Um, exactly, but um, you know. Er. Long lived things, though, those X serves. Is anyone still using an X serve? <laughs> the University of Minnesota still has a stack of them. 
But they're like plugged in and doing stuff. Yeah, they're still running Media Mill. Wow. Yeah, they're the youngest one is six years old at this point. The oldest is eight. Um, and they oh. still churn away. Well, luckily, if one breaks, you can always just replace it. Yeah. So. <laughs> and the, yeah, with spinning discs and you know, eighteen fans inside them, and yeah. Wow. Uh, X serves. Um, oh no, my monitor went to sleep. Okay, I'm back. Um, okay, so Mike, I got a yes. question. Uh-huh. Um, we have an office. Do we? Yeah, we do have an office. Oh yes, yeah. kind of. You, you were yeah, there. Really. You were there earlier today, I think. Yesterday? I don't know. Yesterday. We not for long. No, we're closing down. But right now we have an office. Yes. What's the dress code at our office? Suits and ties. Yeah. So unlike Divergent Media, the White House no longer requires suits and ties for its digital employees, its digital-centric hipster cyber employees. Yeah. So you want to start this with a conversation about playbook, right? Or you just want to get right into me bitching? Um, we can we can start with you bitching and I'll finish it with a positive message. How about that? Okay. Yeah. So this came out, you know, it's like the argument is supposed to be that the White House is now hip to the realities of the workforce and that if you want to get kids who can't dress themselves, you have to not make them dress themselves. Um, you know, I just don't, the, like the way that the article, especially, I mean, it's probably cause it was in wired and not in like a real mate, like a New York times or something. Cause the New York times would have just like been excoriating. Whereas wired was like, wow, they're finally getting it. And it's just like, come on. Like if you really can't put on a suit, I, you know, like all the arguments were like, it's really hard to program in a suit. Like what? How is that different than doing Excel? <laughs> you know, like, well, yeah, but you have to be so creative and suits are stifling. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree on that topic um, that, you know, the idea that we can't wear suits is ridiculous. But the flip side is it is a little ridiculous to have to put on a suit to go like sit in a windowless basement government office. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a little crazy, but at the same time, I mean, like, the that wasn't most of what Wired was championing. It was like, look, this, this like, 22-year-old loser shows up to meet the president in a J. Crew shirt. Yeah. It's like, come on. I agree. President in the fucking world. Uh, Wear a suit, basically. Uh, yeah. To all the Russians Pres- listening. Yeah. President of anywhere you can get to with a drone. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I guess I've never worked anywhere with a strict dress code. Yeah, I know. Soulless and all that, but. Um, you know, I guess I don't find it to be that big an issue. Like, I just can't imagine the world you live in where that's, like, the deal breaker for you. Right. I think it's, a, yeah, a bit of a red herring in terms of what's keeping you from recruiting awesome employees. If, right. Um, and, yeah, it, the Wired article certainly is playing up the wrong factors, but there is that reality, and I think that's what the digital services playbook that we'll link to tries to address, that... 
Um, traditionally being a government employee in tech has meant your sort of, you know, either because of who you are or because of the organization within which you work, you are constantly like 20 years behind best practices of the commercial world. Yeah. I mean, so let's talk, but that's where it gets interesting, this whole conversation, because I mean, where people get re really start having the, the wet dreams about the way that the government is changing. It's basically all these things like, look, they're becoming more like Silicon Valley. Like you can ship stuff quickly and you don't have to worry about whether it works in Internet Explorer, which, you know, what, 60% of the world still uses, including all public libraries and everyone with an income under the poverty line. Um, and you don't have to worry about, like, you know, localizing into other languages. And you don't have to worry about, like, there's a reason why, I, I you know, like, it gets... it. To me, it's sort of wrapped up with all these Ubers and Airbnbs and stuff. Like, Silicon Valley seems to think that they've found this magic formula for making things easier than all those crazy bureaucrats out there. And it's easier because they just cheat. Right, because they only solve the problem for rich white people. Holy shit, we found this horrible inefficiency in taxis. They pay for medallions. It's like... Yeah, they pay taxes to run in a regulated industry. That's not an inefficiency. That is the cost of doing business. And in the same way, like, yes, it's hard to put up a giant website if you're the federal government because the website has to work for everybody, not just people running Chrome. Right. You know, and it has to be, you know, in 15 languages because we don't have an official language. Right. As much as we ignore that fact. And it has to be accessible. And, yeah, and, uh, people have to be able to screen read it because even blind people are citizens of the U.S. still. Like, it's just crazy to me. Yeah. And, yeah, and you've got, you know, the the number of special cases, you know, when you think about something like healthcare.gov or any of these tools where it's like, oh, you're on this, you know, Native American reservation or you're in this district that has this special exemption from section 503.29E. And so we need to show you an entirely different set of website. You know, the, yeah. the complexity is just astronomical. And that I don't think either of us is saying that some of that complexity couldn't be made easier, but that is not the problem that the tech people have to solve. Right. You know, they're not putting on a people. t-shirt doesn't mean you can break shit. Right. You know, which is what we do here. It's like, Oh, move fast, break stuff. Well, you can't do that. Like the FAA is running a 40, 50 year old tra- air traffic control system now. Yeah. And it's not because they're like, oh, shit, we really like maintaining these old tube computers. It's because every time they've tried to get someone to write a new one, it doesn't fucking work. Like, because Windows NT actually isn't that great. And, you know, these crazy deep stacks we've written and all this awesome abstraction and just writing stuff in RESTful APIs, it turns out that stuff works good enough for cat videos right, right. and when, not for airplanes when you think about like if you go on um if you go on amazon's statistics page and you can watch the sort of failure rate and you know they're proud and they're lauded because you know they make that information public and they have a very low failure rate but there's still this sort of idea that many of the things are always breaking and yeah. um 
you know, obviously you can build systems that take that into account um, and can, re, you know, recover from that and don't actually have like one set of systems failing, bring down airplanes. But, you know, the reality is that is a lot more complex than putting up your cool web app. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of the people who advocate for the agile development, you know, the people you're not hearing from are like the guys who are operating the handful of websites that actually have to operate at government scale. You know, there aren't that many of them. Um, right. DNS servers are not designed using agile. Right. Like everything built on top of it is. And even, you know, like the core sort of like database backend, you know, data model management of Twitter. I don't think they sort of make big changes to that casually. Right. You know, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the the digital services playbook that we'll link to is, I don't think it's too guilty of that because mostly what it's trying to just say is, one, you need to think through some of these questions before you embark on a digital project, project, and it's not prescribing very specific answers. It's saying, you know, when possible, look at open source solutions. So if you just need a web server and your choices are IIS, IIS or Apache, consider Apache. Um for you know a variety of reasons in the same like have a development methodology have a development process figure out what that is you know here are here's the one that you know we think works well but it's not saying you must do that it's saying think it through make a decision and i think that is important yeah i agree um and you know also it's just it is i think good for those of us on the outside who are very sort of pro-government in terms of believing the government can do good things and feeling sad when the government fails. Um, it's good to see things like this come out of the government to know that there are people inside the government who are having these conversations and these thought processes and then putting this stuff out there because it at least means there are people who are being thoughtful about it because I don't think that's always the case, even given the sort of bureaucracy we've talked about and everything. I think there are cases where really stupid tech decisions are made in government and well, not for a good reason. Because only people with suits were in the room, Colin. Right. I suppose that's it. Yeah. Um, maybe we should just, you know, set up White House West in San Francisco. And uh... <laughs> I'm going to have an aneurysm. <laughs> you know, so they could really understand what the real world of business is like. Yeah. You know, Apple's going to be vacating one infinite, so they could just take that. Actually, I don't I just... think they are. I, we have to make this into a video, like a movie, like Idiocracy. <laughs> and it would end with them being acquired by Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wonder if the White House has non-competes in place with... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, we never talked about that either. Yeah, well, that's fine. Um, I did learn the other day on Marketplace Money. Um, I think it was on that. Uh, no, it was on Planet Money about college degrees and your mean lifetime average salary. I said oh. average in two different ways there. Yeah. So kids out there, if you're just starting college, it's back to school season. You've got time to decide your, your undergraduate degree. Uh, might I suggest becoming a petroleum engineer? Yeah. Uh, that is the way to go. And don't become a psychologist, a clinical psychologist. Do you have to go to the like... Can you go to any school for that, or is it all just Colorado School of Mining? I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, there were a bunch of different engineering degrees in the top 10 that were relatively closely packed in terms of salary, so. 
Hmm. Um, you know, consider that. Yeah. Um, and political science was, I think, the, one of the higher rated social science degrees. I so believe that. For no apparent reason. Um, okay, so other news. There's really none, is there? Slack. Um, there was a cool video that came out. There were a couple of cool videos this week. Oh, they're in Slack. Yeah, that's there better. was the um, there was the face tracking projection thing. Yeah, that one didn't really do anything for me. No, no. See, I didn't really care about the 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 art of it. Um, but it seems like this real time effect with all the added complexity was an order of magnitude better than most of the filters we've seen for doing digital makeup, which had me wondering. So basically the video, which we'll link to, is a video projector pointed at a woman and a camera. And the camera does facial tracking to figure out the 3D position of the woman's face. And then the projector does um, like projection mapping. So it just projects makeup and a bunch of other things onto her. And it doesn't really, you know, I mean, you never know with one of these things how many takes they tossed. But it does a pretty good job of tracking her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it puts, like, you know, eyeshadow in the right place, and it does lipstick and stuff. And I just feel like we should have a filter, like, in Final Cut X that can do that by this point. You know, they have ones that, like, basically they just figure out what the color of skin is and then blur that. So it's, you know, it's like the old Sony Matrix or pet, what was that called? It was a Matrix, right? Yeah, a skin Matrix. Skin matrix that would do the blur to skin-colored skin, skin-colored pixels. Yes. Um, but this seems to be like an order of magnitude cooler than that. Yeah, but, I mean, I assume the way they did it, I mean, first off, they've got face-tracking dots, which is a big step up. Oh, they do? Yeah. Oh. Um, and then oh. I, I imagine they basically 3D modeled her head. Yeah. Pinned the 3D model to the face-tracking dots. and. Yeah, fine. You're probably right. I don't know. This is art, not science, I think. Yeah. In terms of the technology in play. Fine, fine, fine. I still want that filter someday. I agree. Oh, speaking of filters, actually, I had that cool one. um, Continental's 362 camera system. Did you see this? Yeah. So in the the video, um, so a lot of cars now, um, well, first off, by 2016 or 2017, every car is going to be required to have a rear view camera. Oh. Um, and a lot of cars also There's have... There's new cars, correct? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of cars are starting, especially bigger SUVs, are starting to have um, cameras in the side view mirrors that sort of look down and down and out. Um, and so often these are only activated when you're at like slow speeds in parking maneuvers or you're you know different environments where you might want those. Um, and similarly, some of the bigger SUVs also have a front mounted camera, um, for, again, for parking to understand how far you are from something in front of you. Um, and so what Continental's done, Continental, we think of as a tire company, but they're sort of a massive make everything German company. Um, they have a set of sort of, um, camera four cameras still, and then 
some software that can turn that into those four cameras into a full 360 degree 3d view of the world around the car and then you can actually in 3d space step outside of the car and look back at the car with live video of everything around the car um so it's actually building like a little 3d world with real-time video so that you can actually like look an isometric view of the car as you're parking to understand how far it is from everything around it for example um it was a really neat effect and yeah you know so they must like just type in the color of the car and make a model right yeah yeah i mean all that's yeah all all that's pre-programmed and then they do you know they're you know using ultra fisheye lenses and then really distorting everything but um it creates a pretty compelling view and even in the cars i've seen that have less sophisticated systems it can be surprisingly compelling where you're sort of saying to yourself how can they possibly be seeing that like no camera can be seeing that angle but it's a mix of fisheye lenses and software yeah um but especially if you've ever driven one of these sort of mega suvs it's pretty nice yeah, I can see that. So, um, did you want to talk about the text message? Um, I can do that for my channel. Okay. I don't remember what my real channel was. What was it? Is something on Vimeo? It sounds like me. Um, I wanted to talk briefly about Slack. Okay, let's talk Slack. I think Slack is a web tool. Um, it's a chat room type thing. What do you, how, do, how do they describe themselves? So Slack is what we are. Uh, we started using it last week um, because as we sort of alluded to, we're getting rid of one of our offices. Um, so I'm going to go back to working from home. Colin works from home already. We've picked up a marketing guy recently who's working with us more and more. He works from home. And then Elena, employee number four, is going to, she used to work at the office with me. She's going to start working from home as well. So we're basically, we have more people floating around at random locations that need to collaborate. And in the past, we've done it all through like email and Google Docs and messages. And, um, you know, what I started to find was there was a lot of conversations happening more than once where like you and Elena would be talking about something and I'd be periodically, you know, pinging either one of you to find out what had happened and where things were at and if you two had discussed X or Y. Um, Same with the marketing stuff. It was hard to keep everybody on the same page. Um, And so what Slack is, is it's kind of like messages, except it doesn't always lose your messages. Yeah. And it lets you send pictures and stuff without hanging. And it's... Uh, And it's multiple people so it's kind of you know it's kind of like an irc channel from back in the day yeah that's sort of probably more i mean that's i think what they're actually going for i mean they're you you have an account which has a bunch of users and then you have a series of channels which are you know basically user defined so you can have a channel for marketing a channel for this podcast and a channel for testing and a channel for you know putting up cat pictures and then people just sort of jump between the channels and post stuff. And so you basically have a series of conversation threads going based on topic instead of based on people. And people sort of come and go as they are needed. 
Right. And there's a instant messaging style component of direct messages as well. If you want to have a private conversation. Right. Um, and I don't I th- really use that. Do you use it? Are you guys talking no, about it all not, the time? No. Um, but it's there, I guess. Um, and then there's a lot of integrations, which is the other big thing of Slack that Slack's really introduced to this space. Um, well, that's not true. Because yeah. um, yeah. what's it called? The, the Bitbucket people. From, from GitHub. Well, and what's the thing from... Who are the people who do Bitbucket? Um, anyways, it, they have a whole set of tools that's basically just like Slack, but only for all their own stuff. Um, but So, for example, we've integrated with GitHub and with Jenkins. So every time we make you know changes to a piece of software it gets pushed into a channel and then we can have a conversation and probably the the single biggest thing about slack for me um, especially compared to messages but even compared to irc or something is that the history is always there Um, channels you can scroll back through history indefinitely and search through that history so um you know, that is also important because we operate in two different time zones. Um, and so I can sort of leave messages for Mike um, or he can leave messages for me, even if one of us isn't, you know, in yeah, I mean, work right part, now. Of, part of this, I think, is that we just came to it with no expectations. Whereas, you know, we use messages for so many other sort of conversations in our daily life that like you kind of expect that if you post something to messages that, like the other person's going to reply quickly, whereas this I feel like we we just don't have that expectation, and it's purely a cultural thing. Yeah, but it's nice, like you know, I can just like you know, this is a thing that needs to happen someday, and there's not like a you know, no one has to say like yeah, because I know well, and part of that's like just the tool and knowing that I can trust it to not lose everything, because that happens. I mean, that's amazing that we live in yesterday's future and there's still no way to send a message to another person using yeah. Apple messages and be relatively confident that a it showed up and b when you like switch away from the app and switch back that your entire conversation won't be gone <laughs> right and and i want to reiterate that this idea of um interspersing outside message outside data into your chat because i think this is an area where we've really suffered in the past in development in that you sort of have a conversation about some software you often write it you commit it to github with a message saying like oh this fixes this issue um and then six months later you have the same issue again you've got a regression or something and you can go back through your git commit history and sort of see that message um but you don't have any of the context of that conversation that led up to that change and sort of why you did it and what you were thinking and how you thought it worked. Right. Uh, Or even, you know, there's this thing that is great about all of these version control systems now called blame, where you can look at a line of code and go, God, why did we write that? And it'll let you like, actually it'll show you the day and the time that that individual line of code was written. And it'll tell you, you know, but the, the context is, only like what the person wrote when they committed that line of code. So like it might say like fixed fixed the bug with you know DNX HD. Yeah. And you're like, well, yes, it's in an entire, you know, file of code for DNX HD. It fixed a bug. Great. 
Whereas now we can actually like go, oh, well, here's what we were complaining about that day. It's probably related. Well, and even better than that, because it's got a really powerful search, you can search for the, you know, um, commit number, for example. Right. And get to the point in the chat where you're talking about that specific commit and look at the four hours prior when you were dealing with the problem. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of other integration you can do. You can, you know, we could bring in our support tickets. We can bring in, you know, you can integrate Google Docs and tweets and, you know, code snippets um, all within the chat in a pretty cool way. Yeah, I think we're still just sort of scratching the surface of how we're going to end up using it. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there's always a risk when you start using a new tool, especially a new tool that eventually has monthly fees attached to it, that you're just going to abandon it. Um, but this is feeling like it's going to stick with us. So I'm sure, you know, within the next few months, we'll probably invest a little more time and effort into, you know, rigging it up with our workflow. Yeah. Um, they also have really nice, uh, mobile app and, um, they have a desktop app as well, which is basically just a web view, but it at least means you're not mixing your web browser activity with this. Um, and a surprisingly, or, well, I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but a very reliable sort of push notification system as well on mobile, which is um, pretty slick as well. Because if you've ever tried to sort of mix and match mobile um, AOL instant messaging or Google messaging with a desktop client, things just get confused very quickly. Whereas this deals really well with sort of red receipts and understanding where you're focused and has really clear controls for saying, if I haven't marked something as red, if I haven't acknowledged something on my desktop within X minutes, then push it to my mobile device, but don't push everything everywhere all the time. Yeah. It seems nice. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a certain... I think the, so the story behind its creation, I think, ties into some of what we've talked about with indie developers and yeah. the of indie developers. You know, and so sort of the... The theory that I've landed on for why indie developers tend not to do that well is because they don't exist in an ecosystem where they have problems that need to be solved, um, where they don't at least tend to solve the problems that exist within their own ecosystem. Um, and so you have indie developers writing video software or writing you know, games or writing, um, you know, all of these various niche apps for a niche they no longer live in. Um, and the story behind this is actually the same guy who was one of the founders of Flickr. Um, and the way that both that app and this came to fruition was they were just internal tools that they were using while making a game. So they were making a game. Flickr was like a thing for sharing pictures in the game mm -hmm. and it became successful the game didn't um, and this was for another game this was like for the developers to collaborate on the design of the game and the fact that I don't have a clue what the game was means that Slack has probably done better than that Right. Um, it's just interesting um, you know and we sort of have had the same thing happen Cliprap originally was our tool for testing M2T, some of the M2T um, code for Scopebox, because Scopebox used to work with live Firewire HDV cameras. And it was sort of a pain to plug a camera in and test it 
and try to debug stuff with a live feed. You couldn't recreate the same problems. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't be sure that the exact same thing was going to happen over and over, and you couldn't test with hundreds of cameras easily. And so we sort of rolled up a test product or like a test tool that would work with the transport stream safe to disk. Um, and when people started coming to us saying like, hey, you know, you should... Uh, should consider making a converter since you guys support them live. We'll be like, we have that. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's, there is that important step in um, recognizing that and not being afraid to say, hey, maybe this product's actually better than what I was working on or something. Um, and that, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for that um, process. But yeah. Exactly. And they don't do that enough in, uh, in the federal government. They should have pivoted in the middle of Obamacare well, exchanges. I mean, yeah. The problem is um, they can't have this critical thinking because all the blood flow to their head has been cut off by those collars. The ties, yeah. Yeah, so it's stifling creativity. It seems like, I mean, really, if you have to be a man-child, you could just wear a clip-on tie. Oh, that's true. I guess you could get away with that. Yeah. No one will even know. Okay, done. We've solved that as well. What's your chatter? Mm, my chatter is a video on the internet. Shocking. Um, which is from every frame of painting. They do these fun textual analysis, I guess, of movies periodically. Um, and they have one about the new trend of showing text messages and such, and just the internet in general, and computers in movies. Um, it's a fun examination of what can be done. And and they have really thoughtful analysis, which is what I like about what they do. Um, yeah. Is that they've actually done the sort of the thinking about what it actually means to be making the changes that have been, that have happened over time and why those are happening. It's not just sort of a funny montage. It's not a super cut of everything. It's like textual analysis. Yeah. Speaks to me as a cultural studies almost major. <laughs> a cultural studies devotee. Yeah. Well, I was a cultural studies major. Yes, I guess were, I can say you that. You still are, I think. Yeah. I'm <laughs> in perpetuity. Yeah. Someday, someday we'll get the, get you that honorary degree. Yeah. Um, my chatter this week is just a p- series of pictures um, of abandoned stuff in the London Underground because I'm a total sucker for anything like this, and generally I'm a sucker for anything that Atlas Obscura posts. Um, and so this is just a bunch of cool pictures of all the stuff that is in the um, tube stations and other things under London. Hmm. So it's stuff that got left behind or it's stuff it's like wabi sabi It's like, like architectural stuff. No, it's like stuff that's down there, abandoned, forgotten about, you know. Okay, but not like the teddy bears that are sitting on no. station platforms. No, like whole station platforms. Sure. Yeah. Um Those yeah. always amaze me. Like the idea that you can have an entire abandoned subway platform and not sell it to a club yeah to run raves in it baffles me 
Well, I mean, maybe no one's asked. Maybe this is your calling. Uh, yeah. I have been, I've been playing with Spotify doing the wedding reception. And mix. yeah, I'm going to be a DJ. Yeah. I've been, yeah, I've decided. So okay. if, if I understand Got some good case taste in music, if I understand how this works, you are going to spend a bunch of time picking out all the music. Yes. And then give it to a DJ a guy to not use it. Yeah. Oh, so you're, you're not going to mandate yeah. that he play it. Well, it's a suggestion. Because I was thinking of mandating that my guy play it and also that he's not allowed to talk. Oh, well then, you know, they they have that. It's called an iPod. Yeah, that's kind of what I was hoping That's for. what you should do. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's what, that's what rational people do. Okay. Uh, but then you have to have the equipment. This guy has equipment. Oh, uh, so he's like equipment with a voice attached. Well, no, he's just an equipment and, and he pushes the button. Okay. Know, we'll see. And he pays all the public performance licenses. Yes. Of course. ASCAP. Yeah. Okay. As long as someone is. We don't want them to starve. Um, cool. Well. And surprisingly, someone has already taken my DJ name. What's your DJ name? I was going to be DJ JD Salinger. <laughs> but it's taken. And then, like, my Eminem, I'd be like Eminem, I'd have the second persona, like the crazy one, and that'd be Holden Caulfield. But no, taken. Already done? Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure if the Holden Caulfield, I mean, I, I didn't actually dig into his Facebook. Well, if much. you can't have DJJD, that's sort of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It wasn't even just GJJD, it was DJJD Salinger. Yeah. Like, the whole thing, I was amazed. This what? is the problem with the internet. You can't have a single good idea anymore and not know that it wasn't original. Well, you know, Mike, it may not be too late for you to get your law degree and become JD DJ Salinger. <laughs> nice. And we'll DJ J period D period Salinger. There you go. Yeah. Start studying. Okay, I think that's it.